If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere around you in the pew. 1 Samuel 8 begins on page 230 of that Bible. Uh, Before we go to the Bible, I have a note from Jim and Carol Chambers I want to share. To the members of our beloved church, we want to thank each and every one of you who have come to our side for seven years and given us a home in your home. And you gave us a most wonderful gift of prayer, which has miraculously brought a sense of comfort and strength. We couldn't have made it without your prayers. And for every one of you who have diligently prayed for our son's salvation over the years, thank you. Thank you for the food, the flowers, the cards, the hugs, and a place to celebrate his life with us. Our prayer is that your prayers softened Brett's heart in that time. Thank you, precious friends. Well, it is good to have one another, isn't it? It is good to pray. It it is actually a a reminder to me that... um, For many of us who do grieve genuinely with those who grieve, we weep with those who weep, that uh, after a couple of weeks, our lives are just back to normal, aren't they? And uh, it is good to remember uh, those who continue in grief. And so, Jim, Carol, we continue to pray for you, and we will. We're in... uh, a series of messages working our way through the Bible, touching down at various uh, points to get our minds around the big story, what's often called the Bible's meta-narrative. This is our eighth week, and I'm hoping that by this time you've come to the conclusion that the main character in the Bible is God. God creates. God calls Abraham. God rescues his people from Egypt. God gives his law. God gives the land. God sends judges to rescue his fickle people. And today, God gives a king. Let's read. We'll read the whole of 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit says to us. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, "'Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways.' Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. 
Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to, his ho- to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we, may, we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Let's pray. Our great God, by your Spirit, you have spoken these words to teach us, to give us encouragement, to confront us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness. And so we pray by the power of your Spirit that the purpose of your words will come home to our hearts even today. Strengthen those who believe in Jesus and save those who don't. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have traveled uh, internationally, you know what it means to feel out of place. You arrive and everything is different. The language is different. Driving is different. Food is different. Customs are different. Clothing is different. The way things are there is not the way things are at home. That's also true if you move to another country. But it's not just for a week or two. It's permanent. I mean, many in our community know this. They either came here seeking opportunity, or they were brought here by circumstances, and they're seeking refuge. But everything is foreign. Everything, at least at first, is foreign. And one of the things that you'll find among those who immigrate to the U.S. or maybe immigrate to any country is that while they will adapt in order to survive, they're not interested in losing their sense of home, their culture. They'll often speak their language within their own home. They don't want to lose their customs. They don't want to lose their food. And and many are particularly concerned that their children not be Americanized. 
So in a sense, many families that immigrate to the U.S. actually don't want to fully fit in. And actually, as Christians, we understand that, don't we? The Bible says that we are people who don't belong. We belong to God, of course, but because of that, we don't belong to this world. We live here, but it's not our home. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. Another translation says aliens and strangers. We don't fit in. We don't belong. And you know what? This not fitting in isn't actually a problem to solve. It's a precious thing, and it should be guarded and not gotten rid of. Paul actually commands in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. And my guess is if that Paul was preaching this morning and he was preaching on his own words in Romans 12, he would actually use this story in 1 Samuel 8 as an example of disobedience to that command. Because what these Israelite elders want is to fit in. They want to be like the other nations. It's the very thing that God does not want them to be. God doesn't want His people to be conformed to the world. So this is, not, this is both an important moment and not a great moment. But as we look at it, as we look at this request for a king... I think many of us would be tempted to shake our heads and wag our fingers at Israel and say, oh, shame on you. Shame on you, Israelites. But I think we should be warned against that. And actually, as we look at this chapter, I think we'll come to see ourselves. We'll see our hearts. And by God's grace, maybe by the end, we'll see our Savior. The first thing I want you to notice is the circumstances of this request, the circumstances of the request. It's quite a series of events that unfold before this. In chapter 6, uh, the, the Philistines have captured the Ark of God, which symbolizes God's presence. Uh, but, but, the Pharise- but the Philistines see it as a trophy. And because of that, they suffer and they send it back. But when the Ark returns to Israel, they don't handle it properly. They don't handle it with care and reverence. And so actually God sends judgment because of that. If you just flip backwards to chapter 6, verse 19, you see that God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. You weren't even supposed to look at it. It was supposed to be covered all of the time until it got to its place in the Holy of Holies. But these people are looking at it. They're taking out their phones and they're taking selfies of them with the ark. And God says, we'll have none of that. We'll have none of that. And so He sends judgment on them. Eventually, they do repent, and they come to Samuel, and Samuel tells them what repentance will look like in chapter 7, verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they serve the Lord only. And they're going to have this public service, a service to express their repentance, to express their devotion to the Lord, to express their worship. And listen to what happens in verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as beth Car. Now, once this happens, they set up a memorial, and they name it Ebenezer, which, Ebenezer, which means stone of help, to memorialize the fact that God has helped them in this time of trouble. So, in chapter 7, actually, things are good in Israel. Things are good. The ark is back. The people are walking in repentance. Uh, They're devoted to the Lord. The Lord gives them help. Their enemies are defeated. I mean, it is a good day in Israel. And then comes chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel is a godly judge. He has been leading the people in godliness. We see his miraculous birth to his formerly barren mother at the beginning of this book. And then he is called by God directly to serve as his man. And and, and, and chapter 3 says, none of his words ever fell to the ground. Nothing he did in ministry was, was useless. It all was effective. He's leading them in godliness and holiness. But as good as things are under Samuel's leadership, nothing lasts forever. And the problem is his sons aren't fit to take over. Now, can you imagine these elders, right? You go into any local McDonald's in just about any town, and about 7 a.m. you'll find a group of old men drinking coffee, talking about the problems of the world. Can you imagine these elders? They're at the local McDonald's, and they've got their coffee in their hands, and they're discussing the problem that is on the horizon here. And one of them says, let me tell you, if these boys take over, we are in big trouble. They are nothing like their dad. And another says, I know. They're in ministry to line their pockets, not to serve other people. So somebody finally poses the question, well, what are we going to do? Well, you know, if you read the newspaper, all the really great nations, they have kings. They have powerful kings, kings that bring stability, kings that bring security. We need a king like that. We need to be like these other places. We need a king like that. Let's go talk to Samuel before he dies and see what we can get done. And so they do. Verse 5, they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all 
the nations. That's the circumstance of the request. Things were great, but now this. Now, I bring this up not simply to show you the context in which they're asking for a king, but to show you there's this incredible difference between Israel in chapter 7 and these elders at the beginning of chapter 8. In chapter 7, they're walking in repentance. They're seeking the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They're remembering the Lord's help. But in these first few verses of chapter 8, you would wonder if there was even a God in Israel. There is no mention of God from these elders. The Lord doesn't come up until Samuel goes to the Lord after the request is made. They don't come asking for prayer. They don't come asking for worship. They don't come asking that the high priest would use the Urim and Thummim to see if we ought to have a king. They, they, don't, they don't do any of these things. The Lord is nowhere to be found. Isn't that interesting? They face an attack of the Philistines. They're worshiping the Lord, seeking the Lord, honoring the Lord. They face a leadership decision. Ah, we got this. I know how to do this. Not much has changed, has it? Haven't you found that the times that you are most often on your knees in tears before the Lord is when things are completely overwhelming you? When things are completely, you realize how out of control things actually are and, and, and you are in desperate need of God to do something very, very soon. Haven't you noticed that that's the time that you're on your knees? That's the time that you're in tears? That's the time that you feel the longing of your soul for the throne room of heaven? Haven't you noticed that? But then when you need to make an important decision, where are you? Where am I? We're at McDonald's with our coffee. We're going to brainstorm this thing through, boys. We're going to figure it out. I'm a problem solver. Now, I say that because as a congregation, we are in the midst of seeking to plant this church. And if you're a member, you know that from the time that we met in July to the time that we meet in, August, in October, we are praying, specifically seeking to pray on Fridays and seek the Lord and fast and go to Him and ask Him, is this decision about Bargersville the right decision? And I wonder, from July 23rd to now, if we've been more like Israel in chapter 7 or chapter 8. Have you been praying and fasting? Are you seeking the Lord for wisdom knowing that if He doesn't give it, it ain't going to get God? Have you been praying knowing and sensing the weight of Jesus' words that apart from Him, you can do nothing, nothing. Friends, we don't need to figure this out. We need to seek the Lord. Certainly, all manner of, of conversations and planning and things like that will happen. But are we seeking the Lord? 
Or are we like the elders in chapter 8? We're just going to bypass the prayer meeting and we're going to have a strategy session. Because I'm good at strategy, my prayer life stinks. Well, the request is made, give us a king. But there's a problem. And that's the second thing I want you to notice is the problem with the request. There's a problem with the request. The request itself actually isn't so much the problem because as you look backwards in the Bible, you find that God had purpose to give a king to Israel. In Genesis 49, God promises a king. In Deuteronomy 17, He gives the standards that kings would have to abide by. So this is on God's radar. The, the, the request isn't necessarily the problem so much as what's driving the request. And that's where the real problem lies. The problem lies, what's driving the request is actually rejection, a twofold rejection. First, this request is a rejection of the kingship of God. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I mean, God's been their king all along. He's the one who's been fighting their battles for them. He's the one who's been overseeing their welfare and defeating their enemies and giving them this land and giving them all that they have. He's been doing this from His hand. God has been a good, benevolent, gracious, faithful king. And now Israel would like God to bring a cardboard box to the office tomorrow and put all His personal belongings in it and vacate the throne room quietly. That's what Israel wants. It's a rejection of God as king. Even having just the king like other nations have kings, that's still not getting right to it. But if you look at verse 19 and 20, you get to the heart of really what's wrong. No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Not simply have a king like other nations have kings. God said that was going to happen. We want to be like the other nations. We want this king to go out and fight for us. We need somebody who will go fight for us. We need a king. Now, friends, that is, that is the problem. They want to be like the other nations. God had already told them explicitly to not be like the other nations. They are actually to be a holy nation. You see, this problem of having a king is not a political problem. It's not an organizational problem. It's not even a practical problem. It's not a cultural problem. This is a spiritual problem. They're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be distinct and different. And in Deuteronomy 17, when God talks about the king, the king is supposed to be holy. The king is supposed to be different from every other king. The king is not supposed to seek power and wealth and a bunch of wives. He's supposed to devote himself to God and to obedience. 
But at this point, Israel's not really concerned with that. They just want a man who'll take God's place and lead them into battle, make us a strong nation, make us a leading nation. When we pick up the newspaper six months from now, we want to see our name in the headlines. That's what they want. We want to be all that. It's kind of like today when, you know, this is the reason why we pray for churches like City View, right? Who don't have a pastor. Because when churches go to seek pastors, how often do the wrong things come to the forefront? That what we're really looking for is a CEO rather than a shepherd, a powerhouse rather than a pastor, a manager rather than a man of God. This is what we need. If we're going to be a strong church, if we're going to be a good church, we're going to be a solid church, listen, friends, to reject God's purposes for leadership in the church, in your life, in your job, to say, God, I'm going to set aside that because that's not very practical. That's not going to get me ahead in life. That's not going to get me the next position. That's not going to get me up the next rung. I have to do certain things. I can't just do that. I mean, I'll do that, but it'll be over there. It won't be in here. Because in here, if I do that, I could be sent out there with my cord cardboard box, with all my belongings in it. But to reject God's purposes, friends, is to reject God as king. Whether it's in an organization, a church, or in your own life. It's to reject God as king. And that's what Israel's doing. But this isn't just a rejection of Israel as king. It's also a rejection of God's counsel. A rejection of God's kingship and then a rejection of His counsel. Through Samuel, God warns Israel about the consequences of getting what they want. And I want us to read it again, beginning in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to His servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to His officers and to His servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to His work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, once all that's happened, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That is quite a warning, isn't it? The only thing this king will do is take this is actually not what leadership is meant to be. Leadership is not taking. 
no matter what realm it's in. Leadership is not taking. To lead others is actually to give for the benefit. We're, you're, if you're entrusted with leadership wherever you are, it's actually to give of yourself to make others better, to help them, to do, to do for others, to give, to give, to give, to serve. Right? When the greatest king who's ever come talked about this, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. If you're entrusted with leadership, are you serving the people that you're leading? Are you seeking to help them be better thems at whatever it is they do? He'll take, this king will take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your servants, he'll take your crops, he'll take your income. All he will do is take, 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 and you're going to be sick of it, and you're going to be stuck with it. And even when you have that emergency prayer meeting, he's not going to answer. The warning is right here. Don't do it. Israel should think twice about this, shouldn't they? I mean, they're going to suffer. There's not going to be an eject button. There's no escape route. But they're already shaking their heads, it seems, before... before uh, Samuel ever finishes talking, you know, he's like, but the Lord will not answer you in that. No, 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 but there shall be a king among us. There shall be a king over us. We will be like all the nations. Samuel, can't you imagine what that will be like? Well, yes, actually, Samuel can imagine what that will be like. And he's telling them they won't like what it will be like. They won't listen. They want what they want and nothing will change their minds. Now, we're no different than them, are we? I mean, you just remember when you were a kid all the things your parents warned you about. They warned you about that friend, right? They warned you about that boy or that girl that you wanted to date. They, they, they warned you about that job. I don't think you should take that job. They warned you about jumping off the roof with an open umbrella thinking it would hold you. But did you listen? No. You wanted what you wanted. And so you jumped. And it didn't turn out well for you. I mean, how many doctors are sitting down with their patients, sat down with their patients even this last week to warn them that if they keep doing what they're doing, they will face disastrous consequences? One of the first hospital visits I made after coming here was to see Bob Stewart back when there was a St. Francis Beach Grove. And uh, many of you won't know Bob uh, because he's gone to be with the Lord, but, um, uh, but Bob served as a deacon here for many, many years. In fact, uh, Pastor Lockwood told me that the reason that deacon meetings were on Tuesday nights was because of Bob Stewart. Uh, because Bob had a bowling league on Monday nights. So they had the deacon meetings on Tuesday nights. Well, uh, Bob was a diabetic, and he was in the hospital because he was suffering side effects of his uh, diabetes, and he couldn't see very well by this point. Uh, and it was a Sunday afternoon. I went to see him, and I took our two oldest boys, Caleb and Austin, with me, and we went to visit him. And I'll never forget what he did. And I'll never forget what he said. Because in many ways, Bob looked right past me to my sons. And he said, come here, boys. And he pulled them close. And he said this, if your doctor 
ever tells you to do something, you do it. I'm in this hospital bed because I didn't. And in this paragraph, Samuel is pulling Israel close and saying, this nation is going to be hospitalized if you don't listen up. But they want what they want. Though God warns them. Friends, uh, too often we see warnings as some kind of harsh thing, some kind of bad thing. God's warnings to us are actually a great kindness to us. Warning us against disaster, against falling, against failing, against disobedience. Pride comes before destruction. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I wonder when we hear God, when we see God pulling us close through His warnings, do we take it to heart? Or are we like a, a hard hearted child who just politely waits until God has finished speaking and say, Yes, that's very nice that you've said that, but I'm going to go do what I want to anyway? Israel not only rejects God's kingship, they reject God's counsel. It is a total rejection of God. That's the problem with the request. Thirdly, God's response to the request. So, so Israel rejects God, and really they deserve God's wrath at this point, but that's not what they get. They don't get what they deserve. They don't get the punishment. God gives them mercy. Look at verse 22. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them king. That's about the third time that he said them. The warning was a merciful warning, and now he's going to mercifully not give them what they deserve. They deserve punishment. But actually, I mean, it's an incredible moment, isn't it? God is, God, the Israelites are worshiping Him and devoting them to Himself uh, in one minute, and in the next minute they're saying like, eh, could you leave? We've got something better we want to do now. And God is still merciful. Nothing has changed since the book of Judges. You realize that, right? These people are still fickle. But God is still faithful. And actually, His mercy just gets magnified as you move forward because when you move into chapter 9, a series of events lead to Saul becoming king. And as that is happening, listen to what God says of Saul in chapter 9, verse 16. Tomorrow about this time, he's speaking to Samuel, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. He will save them? Isn't it amazing? God doesn't say, I'm going to teach them such a lesson. I'm going to give them such a king that the whole country's going to burn down. But He doesn't do that. 
He shows them mercy. He gives them a king who will actually save them. And in chapter 11, he fills Saul with his spirit so Saul can save them. God still cares. God still hears. God still answers. Amazing. God is merciful. It's one of his key characteristics in the Bible. It's one of the things we ought to be thankful for every single day. The mercy of God toward us. Deuteronomy 4, the Lord your God is a merciful God. Nehemiah prays in Nehemiah 9, you are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. And how does Paul describe him? Rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. I mean, it seems like Israel gets what they want, but actually they get what they need. Their sins, they are many. But God's mercy is more. Now, as we look at this moment in, in the history of Israel, this place in the storyline of the Bible, we, we actually don't just see the spiritual condition of Israel, do we? We see the spiritual condition of the world. You see, like Israel, our world wants a king. Not literally. I mean, if you had gone down to Southport and Gray, you wouldn't have found a group of old men at, at, at McDonald's sipping their coffee clamoring for a king this last week. But everybody wants something, someone who's going to give them stability and security the way that Israel was looking for a king to do it. The problem is we're looking for kings in all the wrong places. We look to a friend for stability and security. We look to a spouse for stability and security. We look to just, if you're single, you sometimes you just look to the idea of marriage. That's where the stability and the security really are. We look to money. Maybe it's having children will bring stability and security and, and, and greater satisfaction. Maybe if we move to a new city. Maybe if actually I get a new spouse. Maybe if I get a new career. Maybe if I get a new gender. There are all kinds of substitute kings around that people are going after. There's no shortage of them. The most prevalent one looked us all in the mirror this morning because the triune king of most people's lives is me, myself, and I. And chasing all these substitute kings is a rejection of God. And like Israel, we deserve His wrath. We deserve to be shut out and cut off and punished forever. But as God was merciful to Israel, so He is merciful to us. As God gave them a king who would save them, He gave us a king far better than that king to save us. You see, First and Second Samuel as a whole isn't just about kings. It really comes to focus on one king, David. And David is promised by God that one of his descendants will be a king like no other kings, an eternal king. And the rest of the Old Testament tells us that this king will be perfect. He will reign in perfect righteousness and perfect justice. This king will never fail God. And this king will never fail his people. 
And as the New Testament opens, do you know what we find? We find a trio of travelers coming to Jerusalem asking this question. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And they find him in Bethlehem with his mother Mary. You see, Jesus is the king God promised. Jesus is God's gift to a world that rejects him. Jesus gives us not what we deserve, but what we need, mercy, forgiveness. And Jesus provided it not by sitting on a throne, but by hanging on a cross, going to the grave and rising again. There is no king like King Jesus. There is no other so sure, so steady. Our hope is firmly gripped in His hands. Jesus will give you the security and stability at the moment that you need it most, which is on the day that you stand before God Almighty at the end of this life. If there's any moment that you desperately want stability and security, it is that day. And the only way you will have it that day is through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the great news. If Jesus gives you stability and security for that day, you can live every other day up to that day differently with hope and with peace and with actually a soul that cannot be shaken by this world. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Jesus is the only king who can give it to you. He's the king you need. He's the king I need. He's the king we all need. Glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for King Jesus. We hear your words and we see our own tendency to run to other kings, to run in a thousand different directions to find stability, to find security, to find success, to find hope, to find help. We will run anywhere and everywhere but the one place where it lays, the one place where it is given freely. Oh God, would you cause us to repent of chasing substitute kings and cling to the one king who truly satisfies. The one king who has broken sin's tyranny through his death and resurrection. The one king who gives mercy the one king who didn't come to take, but came to give. Give us grace to cling to King Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one song before we go. Once we finish singing, we'll be dismissed.